Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Um... If you remember the last three sermons that I've taught, I did the ascension of Christ, that Jesus, why he left earth. And primarily, one of the reasons to do that was to send his helper, the Holy Spirit. And we learned about Pentecost, right? Um, When the Holy Spirit descended in a wind and flame, uh, uh, tongues of fire, and the apostles, disciples started preaching the gospel and Tons of different languages that they did not know. And the gospel then was received and heard by thousands of people all around the world. And Peter got up and started preaching. And through the message of the gospel of that they killed Jesus, they crucified Jesus by their sin. But Jesus was risen from the dead for them. He calls them to repent and to believe. And what happened is the people, they were so pierced in their heart. They're so pierced in, in, in their soul over their sin that they cried out for mercy and God saved 3,000 people. And we learned last sermon, and I gave many of you an opportunity to respond to that gospel, that when the Holy Spirit enters into a sinner, he gives you a new heart, a new mind, and a new life. Well, if the Holy Spirit is, and God himself is the cause of salvation then if there's a cause, there's got to be an effect, right? And and so we're going to be looking at the effect tonight. Um, But let let me just pray for our time. Father God, thank you so much for Acts chapter 2. I pray that these students would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, open up their hearts and their mind. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me, a weak man, a, a weak preacher, Lord, help me, fill me. Lord, that I may not preach my words or my, uh, use my strength to communicate your word, but that you would speak through me, Lord, that you would use me and that you would open up the hearts and minds of these students to receive your word tonight and to be affected by the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The other night I was uh, driving late at night with... Caitlin, and we were on Roscoe Road. Many of you are from Roscoe, and we are heading towards 2. Uh, it's, I think it's North Main, 2. Dangerous road. Um, and so we're turning. I'm listening to Morgan Wallen because I really love his new album. So I've been listening to him, and we're, we're singing country. Caitlin loves country. And so I'm singing, and so there's no cars. I'm a safe driver. I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty safe. Uh, unless there's ice on the road, I will get in a car accident, which happened. Um, and so I didn't see any cars. I turn. I start driving, right? Ten minutes into driving. And then, boom! Like, the loudest noise you'll ever hear. And a car at, like, 100 miles an hour sideswiped us. Yeah, and scratched my new truck. So, But it's a truck, so it's fine. All right? The, the other car was more damaged. Um, but I don't – actually, I don't even know that because what happened was – he came, I don't know if he was drunk or whatever, we got lucky, hit the front fender of my car, and then went off into the cornfield, but then it was like a berm, got back on the road and just took right off. It's 
guilt right there. He, he knew he was wrong. Luckily, we were fine. <clears throat> but it was instantaneous. It was like that, right? And if he didn't swerve out of the way, um, there could have been some real damage, if not hurt or someone killed. It's a good illustration for what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a sinner. It's an instantaneous work. When he comes and he descends, when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit accompanies the gospel, he changes you. And it's a change that you notice. There's, a, there's an effect. He's not only the cause, but there is an effect. And the Holy Spirit, what he brings is revival. And when he enters you, he changes you. And I'm not talking mystically or theoretically. I'm talking for real. Your lives will be changed. And so tonight, I want, we're going to see the effects of the Holy Spirit saving work upon those who are saved. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse, we'll start in verse 37, but we're going to be looking at verse 42 through 43. What are the effects? How do we know that the Holy Spirit is in this place, in each and every one of you, and in this place? Okay? Let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, this is Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the gospel is for you. It's for your children. And it's for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked crooked generation. So those who received the word by faith, who received the gospel, were baptized. And there were added that day to God's kingdom 3,000 souls. Now, what's the effect? And they devoted themselves. They, those who were saved, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What are the effects of God's saving work? Well, we're going to see three things. First, they were united. There was a unity, united in the gospel. We see them united in the gospel. The first effect of the gospel is justification. Really, it's regeneration. God makes you alive through the Holy Spirit, gives you faith, and you receive Christ, and you are justified, and you are adopted into a new family. And so, where do I get this unity? Where can I see that they're united? In verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves. Who's they? The they is every person that was saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every person from a different culture, nation, tribe, tongue. These are multilingual people. These are uh, multiracial people. And now they're not only scattered. They're not scattered individuals anymore. They're now a unity. So the Holy Spirit creates a unity, a, a new entity, a new allegiance, a new fellowship, a new church. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Ring. It's a great picture in my mind. Is you have 
you have a dwarf, you have an elf, you have a man or a ranger, then you have a man that is uh, Bormir, all right? And then you have a wizard and you have a hobbit, right? You have different people from different cultures, from different nations in the magical world of Tolkien, all right? But they all form a fellowship, right? And that fellowship was centered upon what? It was on destroying the ring. Well, in the same way, when the Holy Spirit enters into you, he not only saves you individually, but he brings you, adopts you into a new family. You belong to a new unity, a new church. See, it's not enough to be united. Some, of, some people say, well, I don't need to be a, belong to a church. I have Jesus. How can you be united to Jesus, who's the head of the church, but not the body? <laughs> right? To love Christ is to love his church. And that's what the Holy Spirit creates. He creates new life, but then also a new family, a new unity, a new partnership. And so that's the first thing that we see here. But what's this partnership based on? What's it grounded on? Is it race? Is it based on class? Is it based on gender? On work? On career? Is it based on the sport or their sex? School? No, it's based on the gospel. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is what brings unity to people of all tribes, tongues, and nations, all cultural backgrounds, to form a new they, all right? And they, they're a new unity. So that's the first thing that we see, a unity. And this is good news, that the gospel is the foundation, because that means anyone and everyone can be welcomed into this family. If it's based on race, then you only got one race that's allowed to join in. If it's, an, if it's the oppressors or the oppressed that get to come be a part of this, then it's one or the other. But the gospel, the gospel of good news, is for all people. And that's the good news. If you feel alone in this life, if you feel like you don't have anyone, know this. You were made for community. You are made to have union with Christ and with God, to be in a relationship with Him. But your sin separates you from Him. But there's hope. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ, to bring you into a new family. And for those of you that have been Christians, perhaps you've been thinking so individualistically about your Christian faith to the neglect of people that are sitting to your right and your left, to your brothers and sisters. You belong to a new family. It's not enough to just come home, right? Just go into your room. Like a hotel, check in and check out. I'm using an illustration when you go home. Here, this is, this is your home. This is your new family. This is the church. Whatever church you belong to outside of this, that's your family. You belong. You need each other. And so that's the first thing that we see. We see them united in the gospel. And that's amazing because the Christian life isn't a single-player single game. It's a multi, multiplayer game. It's, it's Smash, Super Smash Bros, man. You get to play as many people as you want. Some of the girls are like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Nintendo right now. That's what I'm talking about. You know, you've been to someone's house and they're just playing video games by themselves. You want to play and you're like, all right, I'm just going to watch them. I guess that's a new thing. You go on Twitch and you watch people play games, which is interesting, whatever. But it's, 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 it's a new unity, a new family. That's the point, okay? The second thing that we see here, not only does the Holy Spirit create a new unity, but um, <clears throat> not only are they united in the gospel, but then they're devoted 
to the regular worship of God. Devoted to regular worship. That's what the Holy Spirit creates. The question here is, what keeps them united? What keeps the family of God united? What keeps them strong? What keeps them loving one another? And the answer is devotion to the regular and formal worship of God. I'm thinking about Sunday services. I'm thinking about Sunday worshiping the Lord together regularly. Look at the text. It says, and they devoted themselves. Now that word devotion, if you circle it, what it means is a single-minded, so it's a single-minded devotion. It's a constant diligence and fervency towards something. Any, of, any one of you know exactly what I'm talking about if you've had a crush before, all right? You're single-mindedly focused on this person. Now, we're going to be confronted. Or some of you know you're devoted to school. You have a single-minded focus into getting a certain grade in a class. Some of you are devoted to your sports. A single-minded, constant diligence of practice, devoting yourself to your sports. And maybe it's your teams. I'm a big USC fan, all right? So I'm so devoted to college football, my team. I, I, I know what players are on their team. Not this year. I wear their jerseys, you know, whatever. I'm not as devoted, right? Some are. You're devoted to a relationship. There's so many things that we're devoted to, but what, what is it that characterizes the believers here? What are they devoted to? They all had jobs. They all had families. They weren't just boring, weird people. They probably liked to play some sort of wrestling game. Wrestling is one of the oldest sports. I'm sure they liked to do those, those things. They, they loved school. But what were they devoted to? They were devoted, single-mindedly, constantly devoting themselves first to the apostles' teaching. We see four things here. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And and the prayers. The first thing that they're devoted to is (coughs) the apostles' teaching or doctrine. And so what do we learn here? That spirit-filled people devote themselves to the specific and biblical preaching of God's word. They wanted more of it. They couldn't get enough of it. Once they heard Peter's sermon... They they wanted to hear more. They wanted to learn more about God. They wanted to pursue knowing God. They loved his word. And guess what? It wasn't just anyone's teaching that they were devoted to. It was the apostles' teaching. Now we must ask the question, who are the apostles devoted to? (laughs) The apostles' teaching, really, is the whole New Testament. And if we look at who Christ was devoted to teaching, it was the whole Old Testament. These people were devoted to the word of God. And so what we learn here is that God's people, when the spirit descends and fills your heart and makes you a new believer, he gives you a passion, a devotion for the word of God. They were a learning church. And so every week they would go to church to hear and to sit under the apostles teaching. See, a spirit filled people are not anti-intellectualism. They're not an anti-doctrine people. They aren't just all about the experience. They want to learn. Romans 16, 17 uses the same word for teaching here. 
What, what is teaching? What does that mean? Romans 16, 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine, the same word, teaching, that you have been taught. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. When you get saved, he renews your mind. He doesn't make you mindless. Think about it this way. When the Holy Spirit came and they started speaking in tongues, witnessing, what did the people say who were mocking them? What did they say? What did they say in verse 13 in chapter 2? says, but others mocking them said they are filled with new what? Wine. Wine. They're drunk. Think about someone who is drunk. Paul says, do not be filled. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Someone who is drunk, who is filled with alcohol, who is inebriated, loses all function of their mind. (laughs) It's the opposite effect. And so the people that say, no, I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus, or I'm all about the experience and experiencing spirituality and finding a a new, I don't know, experience, right? And they don't know doctrine. It's actually antithetical to what the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, is and does. They're acting more like they are drunk rather than filled with the Holy Spirit. They fill your mind. They give you desires to learn. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Jesus had just risen from the dead. And did you know that Jesus himself taught and learned doctrine? Did you know that Jesus had to learn the Old Testament? Did you know that? That he had to learn how to study God's word. And when he did, he passed on the teaching to his disciples. Luke 24, verse 44. What was it that Jesus studied? What was it that Jesus taught his disciples? What is it that the people devoted themselves to? Verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, that is the rest of the Old Testament, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The whole Old Testament must be fulfilled. Then he opened up their minds to understand scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. Of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father up upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And so we see the scope of what these early church believers devoted themselves to, the scope of what they wanted to learn. It was the Old Testament and the New Testament. Spirit filled people are Bible studying people. First Peter two two. Like newborn infants, Christians, long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And so my encouragement to you is to devote yourselves to the word of God, to studying it, to learning, to knowing it. Look, if I can play Minecraft, which I did, and I beat Caleb Lind. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Who was I playing with? Haven? Who were we playing with, Caleb and Michael, right? If I can learn Minecraft, you can learn doctrine and study God's word. I'll tell you that. That's a complex game, all right? That's a complex game. Some of you, you, you've learned complex things. Some of you are in calculus. Some of you are learning really high-level math and reading high-level books. You can study God's word. You could be devoted to God's word. What are you devoted to? Every Sunday, you get to hear an awesome sermon from Pastor John. And even here, I try my best. Hopefully to gird your mind and to give you truths about God that will transform your life. The early church was a Bible-studying church. Does that characterize us here? Now, I know many of you are new to the faith, so we've got to start somewhere. The second thing that they devoted themselves to, what, what, what was it in the text? Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the what? Fellowship. Fellowship. So the second thing that they devoted themselves to was to one another, was to living with one another, living. that's what the word fellowship means, koinonia. It means to live in, to be together. I got to find Acts where I'm trying to get back here. It's to live in relationship with one another. It's to have camaraderie. It's to have friendship. But it's not just a fellowship of gathering on Sundays together, but it's a gathering where they share with one another the things that they have. Look at verse 44. Verse 44 describes this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That is koinonia, the same exact word for fellowship. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all and any who had need. So how is it, my question is this, how is it that people of every nation, tribe, and tongue can, in a moment, have fellowship with one another? That's pretty amazing. How is it that you can have fellowship with your brothers and sisters here tonight, even if you've never hung out before? It's because of your common bond in Christ. It's because if you are in Christ, you have fellowship with God. And that fellowship with God then flows down into our fellowship with one another. They had all things in common. This is why I love going to summer camps with tons of other believers. And you'll get them experience this. You'll get to worship with other believers. And you could do that because you have a common bond with them. They loved, the early church loved to gather to see one another. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not to neglect to meet with one another as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another as all the more as you see the day drawing near. It wasn't just that they loved to see one another. I know many of you, you come here because you want to see your friends. You want to hang out. That's awesome. But it was more than just seeing one another. It was more than just hanging out. It was intentional. They wanted to get involved into one another's lives. They wanted to come alongside and help each other follow Jesus. This is an intentional gathering. The thing that destroys unity, which we already looked at, 
One is bad preaching. And second is a consumer mentality. I think many of you have this consumer mentality. You come to get, not to give. And I would just encourage you that when the Holy Spirit enters your heart, He changes that. And when you come on Sunday, you come to give. You come to serve. You come to meet with one another. You come to encourage one another. How are we doing with encouraging one another in this this ministry here? Are you stingy with your words when it comes to encouraging one another? Are we living in fellowship with one another? A family... You've probably heard it say, said, a family that prays together stays together. <clears throat> but I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says, a family that prays and plays together stays together. All right? And so we need to have fellowship with one another. We need to get to know one another. We need to hang out with one another. If you only hang out with your, only, your, your clique of just the same people over and over and over again, I challenge you to branch out. To get to know one another. If you're only hanging out with your homeschool friends. Because you go to homeschool. And you don't know any of the public schoolers here. Which there are a lot as well. Then I encourage you to get to know one another. And vice versa. Fellowship. It's a mark of the Holy Spirit. They devoted themselves to teaching. To fellowship. And then the last two things here. And I'll go through these things quickly. The breaking of the bread. And prayer. The breaking of bread and prayer. Now, this is specific. It's formal worship of taking the Lord's Supper. They were united in their Savior. And the Lord's Supper, what does communion signify to us? When we take the cup and the the bread, what we're saying is we belong to Christ. His body is our body. His blood washes us. And so if we are saved, we have died with Christ. We've risen with Christ. His blood washes us. And now we have fellowship with Christ and fellowship with one another. And so that's what they devoted themselves to. Second, they devoted themselves to praying. They, had a, they were united in a common dependence upon God, which is why I love prayer nights. That's why I encourage you to come to prayer nights. My last prayer night was awesome, right? Because we get to do what the church has always done. In fact, one of the first signs of revival always begins with prayer. It does. <clears throat> why do these things matter? Why does prayer matter? Why is breaking of the bread? Why is this devotion Why does this matter for you? These four things. To be devoted to regular worship. Because where these things are neglected, disunity abounds. Divisions occur. When we neglect the preaching of God's word, when we neglect fellowship, when we neglect communion, when we neglect praying together, That only results in disunity, in division. It ruins our witness. The world sees it and says, I want nothing to be a part of that. And so I have to ask you, are these the things that you're devoted to? Things that destroy the church and you are these four things. And they're the opposites of what we just went through. False and weak preaching... Weak preaching is that that never speaks of sin, that never speaks of hell, that never challenges, that never talks about the deep things of God, but is more of a pet talk. Weak preaching, a consumer mentality, a self-righteous spirit, 
and an independent, individualistic spirit is what destroys unity. And I have to ask us, has that infected us? Has that infected you? The means by which we know God's grace and grow in grace are these four things. The preaching of God's word, fellowship, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and prayer. And what is the effect? What effect does this spirit-filled church have, this unity, this devotion? What does this produce? Look at the last verse here. Verse 43 And awe came upon every soul. And many, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now circle the word awe there. You know what that word means? Let's see if you could guess. The Greek word is phobos. It's where we get the Latin word, I think it's Latin, phobia. Fear. And so what happened is when the Holy Spirit descended... They not only devoted themselves to these things, but they were awestruck by Christ. This is my last point. They were awestruck by Christ. They were, they were left. They were filled with awe. They had a sense of awe all the time. That's what it's saying. You can even see in your Bibles, it, says, it puts a little one, at least in my Bible, right next to the word awe. And you look down at the bottom of the page and it translates it to fear. How many of you have left a church service awestruck at the work of Christ? That could tell us a lot about our church, but that could also tell us a lot about you and your mentality of coming to church. Because there's work to prepare ourselves to hearing God's word as well. I would say that God wants to work through the preaching of Pastor John and through me and your leaders, but you don't want it because you don't prepare for it they were left awestruck now a typical awestruck church when we think of being awestruck it's like a sense of wow that is amazing i will remember that right or when lebron james dunks the ball like wow or when our our favorite singers hit the note wow we're left awestruck right when we think of awe, that's what we think. We think about cool. That's really cool. Wow. That's, that's awesome, right? But the biblical word for awestruck here, as I just said, is the word reverence. There's a fear. The same word is used in Luke 1.65 when Zechariah loses his speech and then begins speaking again and people were, were shocked with great fear. Or when Jesus in Mark 41 calms the storm, it says that great phobos, fear, came upon the disciples. And they said, who is this man? Every week, week in and week out, the early church had a sense of awe at the Holy Spirit and what he is doing. Why? Because they could tell that it was a supernatural work. It was unlike anything anyone has ever seen. There's not one community, there's not one entity or institution that has lasted as long as the church has for two millennial. It's still going strong ever since the resurrection of Christ. Have you thought about that? That should leave you awestruck and in fear. I think if there's something that's lacking in today's church, it's the fact that we are so cavalier about God. We're not, we don't have enough reverence. We come, to, we come to Jesus complacently. 
Like our sin is not a big deal. But these early Christians, they were affected. They were affected by the Holy Spirit. They were changed. They, gave, they had a real life devotion. And I know it was devotion because in that time, to be a Christian meant life or death. It meant you were signing up to be burned at the stake. It meant persecution. And yet, in the face of persecution, in the face of death, they still devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship with one another, to church. We don't have persecution here, and yet we have a hard time devoting ourselves to these things. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to repent. We need to seek the Lord. We need to seek the gospel. We need to be reminded of the grace of Jesus Christ. You're like, okay, I want to fear God properly. How can I do that? Go back to point one. Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And I would say also, go back to Jesus. Run to Jesus. See the gospel. Look at Peter's sermon. Be reminded of your sin, that we are sinners. Be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for you. And see all of life through the lens of Christ. In 1801, during the first great awakening, there was a revival that broke out in Kentucky in 1801. And David Rice, who was a Presbyterian minister at the time, an awesome Christ follower, he met with a bunch of other pastors from all over the states. And he was giving an account of what had happened in their church and how they can know a real revival, a real work of the Holy Spirit has, has taken place. And he wrote a sermon and he gave this sermon listing seven things that were characteristic of this revival in Kentucky. And the first thing that he said before getting into his seven was that a revival is a spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit through the ordinary preaching of God's word, fellowship of believers, taking the Lord's Supper, and prayer. It's an ordinary work. It's not manufactured. And it just comes spontaneously. And here are the symptoms or the effects upon this church in Kentucky and Kentucky as a whole. The first symptom of a revival... The first way that we can know the Spirit is working here is this. That it produced a praying spirit. That the people hit their knees hard and started praying like never before. They, they prayed night and day. There was a spirit and a culture of prayer that came over the whole entire church and the whole entire city. The second then was a great conviction of sin then came. They were mourning and wailing over their sin. There was an outcry of God's mercy. They had a sense of sin that was so sharp, their hearts were pierced by God. They saw their sin for what it was. That was the second effect. Third, they then had a lively devotion and an apprehension of the love of God. They spoke of the gospel. They so loved Jesus. They wanted more of Jesus. They spoke of the love of God in Christ. Fourth, this produced in them a burden for the souls who did not know Jesus. They were an evangelistic people. Their hearts started to break for people that didn't know Jesus. They started to weep for people. And they started going to everywhere throughout their cities preaching the gospel. Fifth, the fifth effect of the Holy Spirit in this revival 
is that the whole entire city and the church was changed morally. As, one, as he says this in his sermon, he says, The songs of drunkards became the songs of Zion. No more were you hearing drunkards singing in the city, but they were singing hymns to the Lord. No longer were there uh, people stealing food and, and robbing people, but they were giving and giving their, their proceeds to, to all people. They were distributing their needs to people. Changed the whole city. Crime and everything went down. Sixth, family worship exploded. One of the effects of the Holy Spirit is that families started worshiping weekly in their house with their families. That's how you know the Spirit's at work. And seventh, they were zealous for good works. Not, they loved the gospel, but they loved living for Jesus. This describes the uncommon Spirit-filled community. It's rare. And it's what described the early church. And I hope that it is something that describes us. This is what we long for. We've got to start somewhere. And I think it starts with being on our knees. It starts with pouring ourselves into the Word. It starts with fellowshipping with one another. By taking church serious. And by giving our lives to Jesus. And I pray that many of you would do that. If you don't know Jesus, repent. Turn to Jesus. He's a loving, kind Savior. He wants to change you. Some of you are lost, you're empty, you're hopeless. Well, there's hope in Christ. He can change you and He will change you if you put your faith in Him. And He will forgive you of all your sins.